The fall of empire, gentlemen, is a massive thing and not easily fought. It is dictated by a rising bureaucracy, a receding initiative, a freezing of caste, a damning of curiosity, a hundred other factors. It has been going on, as I have said, for centuries. And it is too majestic and massive a movement to stop. The storm blast whistles through the branches of the empire even now. Listen with the ears of psychohistory, and you will hear the creaking. Today we dive into what is arguably the most famous Asimov novel, an all-time classic that has been an inspiration to countless sci-fi readers and creators. It's the one, the only, Foundation. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Hi, I'm Jacob Yunker. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jason Stark. Welcome to Galaxy. Uh, This is our podcast where we go through the sci-fi novels and stories of Isaac Asimov, one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. And Jacob... Stephanie, this is the big one. We have um, gone through a few novels so far, and we have hit what is most likely the most significant Isaac Asimov novel of them all. I definitely get the feeling that we're in new territory. And that's Foundation. We are talking about Foundation today, and we are going to... I'm not exactly sure how many parts this is going to be. This could be... A three-episode suite could be a four-episode suite. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've had the chance to read through the whole thing yet. Have you? I think I'm about halfway through. I'm in at least the second section. How about you, Jacob? We're in a new territory in more than one way, as I have read more of this book than Stephanie. Oh, my goodness. Dun, dun, dun. I am right. ahead. And I want to revel in that. This I has never finished happened before. part three already. And yeah, but how many times did you reread part one? Three times. I read part one three times. How, how did, did you... this happen? Why? <laughs> well, um, the first time, I got to be completely honest, I was listening to the book, driving to work, and the traffic was such that I didn't pay attention to a single word of it. Not once. Not one word. Not a syllable. Not a period. Nothing. I had no idea what happened the first time. That happens time. to me sometimes. <laughs> so I listened to it again on the way home that same evening. Uh, wouldn't you know it? The same darn thing happened. So you listened to it no, once. No, no, I'm sorry. Hold on. So the first time, two other didn't times. catch it at all. And then when I got back in the car to come home, I just turned on Audible again, didn't think about it, and part two started. And I listened to all of part two. And I was actually paying attention to part two. And I was like, I feel like I've missed something very important. So you, yeah, so you actually listened out of order and got uh, a very weird sense of it, didn't you? I did. And then I listened to part one again on a really high speed to catch up to part two to see how it all connected. And then I started reading on part three because I thought we had to have, have to have half the book read for the podcast. Turns out we're only doing part one. And by the point I got to part three, I was like, I have forgotten most of part one again. So I re-listened to part one just a day or two ago. So in the future, I don't think that that is necessarily the most efficient means of consuming (laughs) literature. I don't think it is either. (laughs) But I love that you really, you know, you really did actually pay attention. Like you went back and you tried to get that in your brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually it quite ironic, Jacob, that you ended up reading what you've read so far in the order that you did. Would you like me to tell you why? Yes. Okay. I have a feeling I know why. So we're going to have a little bit of history here about the book and about its publication. Um, four of the stories, there are five parts in this book, four parts in Foundation were actually published between 1942 and 1944 in Astounding Stories. So remember... We've already talked through iRobot, and that was a series of short stories that were then later made into a novel. And Foundation has a a similar legacy, not quite as disjointed as iRobot. However, it was originally written in separate parts that were published in Astounding Stories. So 
this started in 1941, and um, Asimov proposed a story idea to none other than John W. Campbell. We've talked about him in a few different episodes, who was the editor at Astounding. And he proposed this story about a declining galactic empire, and that was supposed mm-hmm. to be like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So a direct Yeah, it did corollary. have that vibe. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and there's a reason for it. It was very, it was very deliberate on Asimov's part. And Campbell really liked the idea. And so he published the stories uh, for Asimov in Astounding. So that makes this book another short story fix up. So it's really interesting as you read through it, especially as you get into the second half of the book, which we haven't, you know, you, you two haven't read yet and we haven't covered it yet. Uh, but I think that fix-up sense gets a little bit clearer as you get like toward the second half of the book. I think it loses some of its cohesion. And then the remaining part of the book was written in 1951 for the novel compilation, uh, which was published by Gnome Press. Guess which part that was, the remaining part? I bet the beginning was the last part written. You got it. That's right. Part yeah. one was the last part. <laughs> written that's why i say it's kind of ironic jacob that you read part two first and then you went back and read part one because part one was actually the 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 last part of them all to be written so yeah it definitely felt that way it felt like one of these like flashbacks or like you you kind of get it at the beginning of the movie and then you flash forward 50 years to this brand new space and then the movie actually starts Well, speaking of cinematic excitement and action, I'm about to read a synopsis of this first part and um, and and just kind of cover the material. The reason we do this, just as a reminder, is that if you are not familiar with this material, which, again, this is the biggest book that Asimov is remembered for biggest series, I suppose, the Foundation series. And but you may not have read it yet. You might be coming to this material really fresh, just like Jacob and Stephanie are. And if so, we're excited about that. So um, I, I guess one thing to say is that if you haven't read it yet and you and you don't want spoilers, just feel free to hit that pause button and go and read the book and then come listen to our conversation about it. But also, who knows, maybe you have read it, but it was several years ago and we just want to give you a little bit of a refresher in that case. So that's why we do this. So, without further ado, here we go on a synopsis of part one. Cue awesome music. Gal Dornick is a man of humble beginnings. Raised on the small planet of Synax, he is making his first trip ever to Trantor, capital world of the 12,000-year-old Galactic Empire. He's a young mathematician and has been invited by a man named Harry Selden to come to Trantor and join his project involving an advanced statistical science called psychohistory. Gal arrives at his destination to find an astounding mechanized world consisting of one huge, mostly underground city. In awe, Gal fumbles his way through the spaceport, does some brief sightseeing, and finds a hotel. Little does he know that he is being followed by Imperial agents. He converses with a helpful stranger on an observation deck about the reason for his arrival, and the man answers that Harry Selden is viewed very skeptically on Trantor as a prophet of doom, predicting that Trantor will be destroyed. Upon entering his hotel room, Gal is surprised to find a frail old man waiting for him. It is Harry Selden who informs him that he has been followed since he arrived. He also asks what Gal has been told about Selden from others and Gal relates his previous conversation on the observation deck. Selden then leads Gal through a mathematical or psychohistorical analysis of the current state of Trantor and the Empire. The conclusion is undeniable. Trantor, an overly specialized, indefensible, and highly valued prize plagued by royal instability, will very likely be destroyed within three centuries. The following morning, Gal is taken into Imperial custody, Demanding a hearing before the Emperor, he is met instead by Lors Avakim, an attorney who works for Selden. It is covertly made known to Gal that Selden's visit the previous day was a calculated move, intended to provoke government suspicion. His views are increasingly viewed as dangerous to imperial power, and his project has seen increasing obstacles. 
Yesterday's meeting was arranged to result in Gal's and Selden's arrest, and a chance to make Selden's views and plans known. Selden is put on public trial, where he is questioned about his project and his predictions. He plainly and passionately asserts that not only will Trantor fall, but the entire empire is heading toward a collapse into 30,000 years of brutal anarchy. A collapse cannot be stopped. The societal forces involved are simply too strong to counteract. There is, however, the chance that the time of anarchy can be shortened to only 1,000 years if Selden and his team can work to produce an Encyclopedia Galactica, a storehouse of all the galaxy's knowledge so that a new and stronger empire can rise sooner. Following the trial, Selden and Galdornik are led to a private hearing with the Commission of Public Safety, the ruling body that actually controls Trantor, where Selden is offered a deal. He and his team can work on their encyclopedia if they leave Trantor for another planet. The planet offered to them is Terminus, an uninhabited world on the outskirts of the galaxy. While Selden appears to accept the offer only reluctantly, he later tells Gal that this development was also calculated and hoped for. It is part of Selden's plan. A foundation will be established on Terminus to begin the work of the encyclopedia, and another will be established on the other end of the galaxy, at Star's End. Selden, however, knows that he will not, like Galdornik, be going to Terminus. He grows weaker by the day and does not have much longer to live. I love this section of the story. I love it. It is so well put together. And, you know, knowing now that I didn't know this before, but knowing now that this was the fifth written part and kind of takes everything, you know, it takes all of that into into account, essentially. And and it's known to Asimov as he's writing it. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I think it's a very strong section. Like he knows exactly what he's doing at this point uh, with it. So. I feel really bad for Gal. I mean, showing up for a job interview and getting arrested the same day. Yeah, but it was all part of the plan. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Gal. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about our narrative universe, okay? Uh, the last one, last book we read was Pebble in the Sky, which was written in 1950, and this part of Foundation was written in 1951, and so um, there is mention of Trantor in Pebble in the Sky. There are several mentions mm-hmm. to it. And that makes that that makes this like the first really overt connection point from one book to the next, in my opinion. Like you can talk about different ideas that are resonant from one book to another, but this is like the first like name drop. Yeah, it's not you're not theorizing anymore at any point about what he means to say. Like it is ob- like Trantor's Trantor. It's still Trantor from from both books. Yeah. And and if Pebble in the Sky was written in 1950, that means that in Asimov's mind, this idea of a galactic empire was already brewing, obviously. Well, I mean, it was brewing in his mind through the 40s when he was writing these first parts of Foundation. Isn't that cool? That's like, you know, we look at Pebble in the Sky and it's like, well, it was written in 1950 and therefore, you know, it was written before Foundation in quotes, you know, the novel. But no, it actually wasn't. Um, the The major components to Foundation and the concept of a galactic empire had already been developed in the serialized um, the serialized parts of this book. So, narrative universe, we have we get a little bit more description of this empire. I think in in this first part of Foundation, twenty five million inhabited worlds, and obviously yeah. with that, an absolutely astronomical well, no pun intended, astronomical <laughs> population. And um, also, uh, as far as the narrative universe goes, you know, just on the side, we are now entering the Asimov phase of like super weird names everywhere. Um, yeah. And and obviously, Gal Dornick, spelled G-A-A-L, um, is only our first example of the many weird names that we will encounter in Asimov's books. I mean, I've read a lot of weird names in like Greek and Hebrew and then you translate them, and it's like John is spelled in Greek with like you know ten letters, and it looks really weird. And then you're like, oh, it's just John. 
So Right, right. You know, it's just John. Just the development of language is really funny. So I'm sure over, you know, 25 million worlds language. Do they have the same language? Do they have like a common language? Um, I mean, from what it presents here, you would assume that, yes, there is a common language between all these different worlds. Dornick is able to land on Terminus and just kind of hop Start right talking. in. At the same time, in Pebble in the Sky, there were references to people needing to learn different languages in order to go from one planet to another. So that's not really something that's picked up here. I'm not exactly sure if that's an intentional, um, yeah. if that's, a, I'm not, I'm not sure where all that connects or disconnects though. Yeah. Well, I guess it would be like a Roman empire type thing where, you know, Latin is the lingua franca or whatever, but everybody also knows Greek and, you know, you get different dialects of various countries as they are con as they're conquered. And then we also have the age of this galactic empire, which at this point is 12,000 years. So if we recall in Pebble in the Sky, that was at a point where the empire was only about eight centuries old. And so we have just taken a very significant leap forward into the future Huge. Uh, as far as as far as where this narrative universe is. And then we have Trantor itself, which is uh, one big, huge metropolis, planet-wide city, um, just city all around and much of it underground also. I really like uh, how the book introduces us to this city with Gal's eyes because we, as readers, we're more likely to be like Gal in this situation than anyone else where it's, we're inside, we're looking around this metropolis where it doesn't really look like there's even walls yeah, barely see a roof, but I know I'm inside. And then going to the observation deck and realizing I'm only 500 feet up. It's crazy. Right, yeah, because most of it's all underground. And what you're saying is actually bringing up one of the interesting devices in this section, which is that whole kind of fish out of water sort of, uh, sort of trope that is really good for plot exposition. Because like you said, you're walking through it with the person. And so this person needs explanations and therefore, you, the reader, get explanations too. So it's clever. It gets the job done. Yeah. And when talking about Trantor, um, does this seem familiar to you at all? Big planet-wide city, capital of the empire? Yeah, <laughs> I was picturing somewhere between like a Coruscant or, and like a Cloud City from Star Wars. And I really, I, I get the creeps from Coruscant. Like, I just, I hate all those scenes because they're so... It's like, why are there so many people and it's so packed? Or like, have you seen The Fifth Element? I have. There's like a huge, you know, city, like planet thing as well in The Fifth Element. So it's just, I don't know. That trope kind of comes up over and over in, uh, in sci-fi. Sci well, we can see where it kind of got its big start, can't we? Yeah. It's easy to see where someone like George Lucas has been quite influenced by a lot of this, um, a, a lot of these motifs from the empire itself to, to Trantor and it's kind of, uh, similarity to Coruscant and it's, and, and, and that whole deal. Oh, yeah. Last bit of narrative universe stuff before we move on, um, is hyperspace. You know, we got a little glimpse of it, a little comedic glimpse of it in iRobot and we got a little bit of mention in Pebble in the Sky, but this time we get, I think, what is a very interesting description of it, which, um, as it reads, quote, that unimaginable region that was neither space nor time, matter nor energy, something nor nothing, in which one could traverse the length of the galaxy in the interval between two neighboring instants of time. And so... Uh, we, we're getting a picture a little bit of what this now looks like. No, I, I like that description of warp time, warp speed. Yeah, it's hyperspace, actually. But Hyperspace. Uh, Sorry, thank you. Can you explain the difference, please? Sure, yeah. Um, warp speed is kind of the purview of Star Trek, right? Yeah. And warp, warp drive, warp technology, that is about um, the way that the, the ship creates a warp field or a warp bubble around itself, which actually takes the fabric of space time and, and warps it. 
and 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 that actually pushes the ship forward through space. So the ship is not technically what's moving. It's the space around it that is contracting in the rear and expanding in the front that drives the ship forward. That's how warp drive in Star Trek works. And and the ship is basically static inside the warp bubble mm-hmm. and it's the and it's the space around it that's that is doing the work. Hyperspace on the other hand is basically like slipping out of this this existence for like this instant of time and reappearing in it in another location. If you ask me how it works, I I don't know. Um we don't get a huge exposition of the hows of how it works. Yeah, that's not Asimov's vibe. It's really not, as we will see more of in this section for sure. Yes. What did y'all think of the encyclopedia article kind of device that gets used? I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun because it, it made me feel like I was being told this very old story right off the bat. Um, which kind of sets me up for finding out what where we end up at the end of this book. I'm right. really excited to see because like, like the first part tells us that they're starting on this project of Encyclopedia Galactica, and but we're reading that story out of the Encyclopedia Galactica volume something crazy. Yeah. So we know that they succeeded to some extent. Right. Yeah. How about it, you, Stephanie? It definitely gives it this um this feeling of it being very a very old story which always makes me kind of wonder like okay so where are we actually going with the story if this is all prelude you know where are we actually who are actually the main characters and where are we actually ending up you know because this is the this is the old part of the story yeah good question mm-hmm. yeah and i think these these little article snippets on the one hand i do like the fact that sometimes the the article just kind of trails off and picks up somewhere else. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm I feel like I, the reader, am skimming through the article <laughs> because I'm skipping over the boring stuff. Yeah, that's kind and of And it's oh, also yeah. clever on Asimov's part because that means he doesn't have to do a whole lot of explaining, you know? Where yeah. there's the part of it where it's like, yeah, he's really known for uh Harry Seldon is really known for psychohistory, which goes a little something like this dot dot dot. And then we pick up somewhere else. Like he's just <laughs> avoiding like how how psychohistory works, which we'll get to in a little bit. Well, it's good um, that way he doesn't have to dig himself out of a hole as time moves forward and his techniques might. He doesn't have to be a psychohistorian to write the book. Yeah, that's true. Which is um, good. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes things a lot easier. But I think another thing that these articles do is it is like you said, Jacob. It's another device that provides orientation to the reader. Not just in the sense of getting a sense of like the whole scope of the grand story, you know, oh, well, this is out of Encyclopedia Galactica that they're talking about in the story, but also like it's a really convenient way for him to communicate background stuff to the reader in a way that's like rapid and succinct. So you get the background of Selden, you get Trantor's fragility, essentially, uh, essentially. Uh, the state of the imperial government, and it's really convenient because it means that that's a lot less plot exposition uh, that has to be done uh, after you kind of just throw that out there in this kind of formalized way. It's really cool. Yeah. 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 Jason, before we get to the psychohistory, can we take a second and talk about um, like Trantor itself and kind of the city vibe because I thought the whole you mentioned Gal going sightseeing, but I thought the whole idea of him doing that and going up to that observation deck to like see the sky that was really interesting, but it was also really creepy. Go on. Yeah. So did did not that not just freak you out that like you couldn't get out of the city? Well, no. he he goes up on this observation deck. Really. There's there's hardly anybody with him. Hardly anybody's interested in going up and seeing the surface. Mm-hmm. And when you look, it's actually interesting because while it is this planet-wide city, it's not the kind of planet-wide city that you get images of with Coruscant going back to that. Like with yeah. Coruscant, you see all these like ships flying around and like 
they're essentially, you know, flying around on these paths or highways, I guess skyways is what you would say. Yeah, yeah. And but you you go up to the observation deck uh somewhere on Trantor and it's just desolate, you know? There you might see like one or two ships or something going up or coming down from orbit, but other than that, everything's underground. It's just like it's just kind of like a ghost town up there. In that sense, I thought it was a little creepy. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because, okay, so Jacob and I both grew up in Oregon, but not in city Oregon, in rural Oregon. So, like, even to be in Kentucky, where it's really rural, but, you know, if you go another half an hour, you're going to find someplace new. Like, you're going to find another tiny little town, or you're going to find another little house, or you, like, there's always something around, you know, there, there was always something. You could always find some people, but like, there have been days when we had to drive across the country where you drive through Utah and you don't see a town for like twelve hours or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. So, so Trantor made you claustrophobic a little bit. It really did. Yeah, absolutely. which is interesting because, as Jacob, as you were mentioning, in some ways, Trantor feels even on the inside. Like, it might not be a very claustrophobic place. Like, big enough in these internal environments that you can't even really see the far extent of it. It just seems almost like there's sky, even though you're underground. But, um, but yeah, that's an interesting thing that, that Asimov does toy with a little bit when he's talking with kind of the, um, I, I don't know, just the clerk who sells the tickets for these tours and everything, and how... Yeah, they make the kids go up to these observation decks like once a year starting at age whatever just because they need to get acclimated to it. Scares them to death the first time they ever see it when they see the open sky though. It's really it's really fascinating to consider what does that mean for a society that spends almost all of its existence underground. Well, I think you could say something about not being able to handle the incomprehensible or like just the bigness of the universe. So, you know, what does it mean to have 25 million planets if you don't understand that the sky is bigger than you are? Well, that's probably why they dig in, literally. Go on. Well, I mean, so Trantor's like the capital. The galaxy, the universe is incomprehensible. And they are the capital of the incomprehensible. And their response was to literally dig down and put a and put a ceiling on everything, and ba- they barely make an effort to go out and actually see what it is they quote unquote govern. Oh my goodness! I just I just realized what's going on. Okay, so do you remember the um, the fire thing, Jason, that you talked about in iRobot, with like this caged fire that like wasn't actually fire? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Same idea. Okay, so like it, it is the ultimate in quote civilized. That's what Trantor is, is like the ultimate civilization. But are they really people? Yeah, well, I mean, he even uses that sentence in the book. Like it's the ultimate conquering of a planet to look like this. Oh, that's so interesting. Right. Yeah. And, and yet it's, they're terrified of the sky. Yeah, really the planet has kind of conquered them if you will. I think yes. that's a more appropriate way to put it. I mean, there's no one on this earth we could say, if would you be scared to go look out at the night sky right now? They'd probably be like, I'm more scared of you asking me that question than anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at Trantor, they are. They are actually disturbed by sky. Interesting. That's a, con- a continuing theme of Asimov, you know, poking at like civilization and the whole that? idea of like to be really human, you have to be free and outside and like pushing out the boundaries. That's interesting. Fascinating. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to take a dive into the topic of psychohistory. We'll be right back. This episode of Galaxy is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the number one source for audiobooks and also offers podcasts, guided wellness programs, Audible originals, and more. They have thousands of titles, and that includes every Asimov novel that we will be discussing on Galaxy, from Foundation to iRobot 
to the end of eternity, Audible has you covered. In prep for our episodes, I have primarily been listening to these books, and Jacob has been listening during his to and from work commutes as well. Whether commuting, exercising, or just relaxing at home, Audible is a great way to experience new books as well as your all-time favorites. Right now, you can start a 30-day free trial that includes a free title of your choice and access to Audible's content through the Audible Plus catalog. Visit audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast to start your free trial today. That's audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast. Okay, so what is psychohistory? What is it and how does it work? What's your assessment of it from this first reading that you've got? Give me your description. All right, I think I've got it. I think I've got it. It's applying statistical equations to history teachers, and that's it. To history teachers? Yep. That's it. That is, I don't that get is it. it. You got to explain more. Okay, so. Why teachers in particular? What are you talking about? So um, history teachers take several different scopes of history in, into account and mush them all together. Well, not mush, but Okay, what level of history them. teachers? Well, most, I'm thinking mostly like undergrad collegiate level where you still have to cover huge chunks of history, but still in a broad enough sense that it's not like a specialized degree. Oh, I see. Is that okay. fair? So what you're saying is psychohistory to you seems like the melding of the teaching of history and the teaching of statistics? Yes. Okay, got it. Okay, how about you, Stephanie? Oh my goodness. I was like, wow, that's a really interesting idea that will never, ever work. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I think that's also Because, I mean, Jacob's, Jacob's working on a degree in statistics, and the thing that I have learned as, you know, his wife listening to him talk about things halfway because it's statistics and it's really boring. Hey. Um I'm sorry. You're the only one who thinks that it's interesting. You're right. Good for you. We need you. But also, it's really boring. <laughs> I'm not anyway, even offended. Um, statistics can barely comprehend things anyway. Like, you're never 100% certain, right? There's always some sort of... A, a good statistician will let you know that, yes, 100, being 100% 100 certain of any finding um, is either a result of bad stats or bad um, experimentation. Yeah. So, like, it can barely kind of comprehend what's going on in a small population with a control. So, you know, to be able to predict the future, that seems pretty... That seems arrogant, honestly. I think okay. you could maybe predict a trend. You okay. could maybe say, we are going to trend toward... Uh, disintegration of the empire because of these things and lay out some evidence. So you've kind of got this statistical analysis, historical analysis that's also kind of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A philosophical analysis. So you're kind of, you're pulling a bunch of things together. And There's and, a lot of bias possible there. And furthermore, as much as I love historians, the best historians I listen to all say that historians are not future predictors. They're historians. They only look at the past for a reason. Right. Um, because as historians, they are still products of their time, and they can't look forward out of their time for that reason. Or remove their particular subjectivity in order to, in order to take this mm -hmm. truly Which scientific, objective look at, at things. Yeah, yeah, which I think is the attempt, Asimov, or Asimov, or whoever, whoever I want to say for psychohistorians, I think the attempt of getting rid of that subjugation that historians find themselves in is to mix it with stats, which is the the strong practice of removing subjectivity out. I did a Facebook post um, on our page and shared it to a bunch of uh, different sci-fi-related Facebook groups and just asked, hey, let's talk about psychohistory. Um, give a description of it. Do you think it's realistic? What do you think is wrong with it? Any modern corollaries, anything like that? I got a lot of great discussion um, on this and answers about whether it was realistic or not ranged from folks who said, 
Oh yeah, I think that I think that that's um, actually a pretty solid idea, decent idea to other people who are just kind of like, no, this does not work at all. Like it was really quite varied in terms of how people hmm. responded, and I think, um, you know, I can't really cover everybody's responses or anything like that, but um, there were a few really interesting ones. Like I think that one of the things that this ends up boiling down to is on the one hand, there's this question, I think, of like a deterministic outlook on what we can know uh, and how we can look at the universe versus like, say, like chaos-based models. Um, Determinism was all about assuming that you can, uh, you know, as long as you have enough data, you can project outward and know exactly what something is going to be like at any particular point in time. Um, but at the same time, like in the last century or, or more, the rise of things like chaos theory have, have made that deterministic view on things look very skeptical. Okay. I Are you all familiar a, with chaos theory? Yeah, I have a question actually about chaos theory. Is that an actual thing that people study? Because I was under the impression that Michael Crichton made that up. No, it was popular no. when Michael Crichton was doing his thing is why okay because i'm really only the, familiar with ian malcolm as far as chaos theory goes i hate to which say apparently it, was too. not which apparently was not that bad of a description um i needed a little bit of a primer on chaos theory myself and what do you know what ended up on my feed my podcast feed this morning was an old episode of stuff you should know about chaos theory and Isn't so i i I know. I love stuff you should know. I will always recommend that podcast to anybody listening. And um and yeah, it was a uh, it was like um they do kind of like a greatest hits thing every Saturday and so this one was about chaos theory. Really what it boils down to is just that complex systems, like super complex systems, they simply contain far too many variables and ways in which predictable results are offset that it just it becomes practically impossible to predict how things will go past a certain point. Chaos theory, it doesn't mean that like no stability exists in nature and it's just anarchy and you can never predict anything. Yeah. Like chaos theory would say that there is what is called a dynamic instability, which involves albeit periodic, but moments of stability within that. And it just it, it seems to me like what chaos theory is saying is that nobody can realistically gather all of the data that's truly necessary to predict the future, like with precision accuracy. There's just too much data. There's too many variables to really predict anything. If I was if I was going to try and advocate for like uh, an attempt at psychohistory being plausible, I you're think always so optimistic. I am very optimistic. Um, I think I would say that there's there's a nature to stats which allows for the unknowingness of systems, chaos theory, yeah. and still sifts its way mathematically to finding correlation strength, not predicting the future, like I think it's been misused in the book, but still finding strengths and likelihoods. And I think... Which is not that all unreasonable in light of the book, because... Selden says, like, there's a such and such percentage chance, you know? That's like, true. He doesn't... He's not giving... I mean, the the idea of him being a prophet of doom is a misrepresentation. He's he's giving a model projection. Yeah. Um, and his only model projection is um, absolute. He only has one absolute, uh, which is funny, because we're talking about how nothing really could be absolute in stats. But that being said... Um, psychologically speaking, in in the his in the history of larger systems, it is almost easier to track how people move when they are grouped. So I, when he started saying like it's harder to predict individuals, like let's not get into individuals. There's too many variables there. I kind of like respected that a bit because like groups of people is almost it's, <laughs> they're much easier to to see and foresee. Um, and which and is why have, in voting you try they try to group people into like you know white college educated women tend to vote this way and and things like that yes because individuals are always going to be individuals who go against the stat 
but the stats come from groups alone. So I think if you're going to have any kind of attempt at predicting futures, any attempt at predicting correlating things of futures and people, psycho history would be the way to it would go. Yeah, like so an example would be if we could mathematically figure out how many times in history this it, like I, I think they had some examples in the book one of the variables was like um the lack of curiosity and at first you hear something yeah. like that and you're like how do you quantify that well i mean there's a lot of right. things in psychology even today where we're, we're getting close to getting pretty solid definitions of curiosity and how to measure it in a person not perfectly but i mean it's something you could use in predicting a large scale movement of people yeah uh i also want as as far as like uh, contemporary corollary ideas to psychohistory. I do want to bring up um, something that I came across that somebody in our in one of our Facebook conversations brought to my attention. And that's something called cleodynamics, which I had never heard of up until this point. And that is defined as mathematical modeling and statistical analysis of the dynamics of historical societies. And so obviously when I say historical societies, that's looking backward but that is also used by some figures to try to project forward based on dynamic like historical trends. There is a prominent figure in that whole thing by the name of Peter Turchin, and um, the the person who pointed me toward Cleodynamics uh, pointed me toward a really interesting article in The Atlantic, and it was actually from this month, and it's about Peter Turchin, and... Um, and I'm going to post the link to that in the show notes if you want to go read that. And um, it's also particularly interesting because Turchin is also predicting uh, a, a certain level of societal collapse uh, in some point in the near future. Did you read this article, Jason? <laughs> I did. Okay, part of the way down, I'm just scanning it really quick. He actually likens himself to Harry Seldon. That's exactly, hilarious. yeah. That's so cool. And Oh, well, I don't know if cool is the right word, but that's really interesting. Yeah, let's see. How does he word it? I think that he kind of looks at the pattern of how societies end up overproducing elites without the actual means by which for those elites to actually exercise their their knowledge or their skills. So it's basically like there's a scarcity that builds when it comes to like class-based dynamics. I don't quite remember all the ins and outs of it, but he kind of bases his ideas about societal collapse on two or three different dynamics that he sees in play. So if you can find a measure, you can put a stat to it. I guess the other thing uh, that I think about is, um, and that was also mentioned in by plenty of people, is aggregate data collection and algorithmic curating of things like advertising um, that this is a little different, obviously, uh, than, than trying to predict the future, but it is true that artificial intelligence, machine learning is getting like creepily good yeah. at anticipating what people want at least. So, all right, you guys, I'm feeling one more break. Um, this is a long episode, so I feel like I need another rest before we continue on to the end of this. Hi, listeners. I wanted to take one more opportunity to talk about our Audible trial offer. Galaxy is an independently produced podcast, and that means we can use all the help we can get concerning the costs of producing it and getting it to your ears. We hope that if you've been listening for a while that you've enjoyed it, that you think it's well done, worth your time, all of that. If that's the case, we also hope that you might consider supporting us. While there might be several options for doing that in the future, right now, our primary means of listener support is our Audible trial program. And for every trial that someone begins through us, we are helped financially through that. So if you are a U.S. listener, you can do that by going to audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast and signing up for a 30-day trial. You'll get a free audiobook title of your choice and access to the Audible Plus catalog of content. 
There's no obligation, and you can cancel at any time. It's a big help to us, and it's an opportunity for you to grab one of your favorite Asimov titles as an audiobook. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash galaxypodcast. And thanks for listening. Back to the show. So are you ready to talk about worldview stuff? Yes, please. All right. So since this was like an intro type section, we don't have a whole bunch in the worldview section, but um, probably the one big thing that we should talk about is how do we react to authoritative voices, to the experts in the field? So we have Harry Seldon, who is an expert in psychohistory, and he's kind of manipulating this whole situation and then you have a different type of authority in like the ruling body of Trantor so yeah I mean it's interesting because on the one hand Asimov actually goes to some deliberate length to demonstrate to the reader that psychohistory is incredibly hard to understand and that your average imperial citizen is not going to get what is being talked about. And I think that there's this issue where when the discipline of whoever is the expert, when that discipline becomes particularly specialized and hard to understand, I think it becomes easier to essentially write off that person and their ideas because you think to yourself, I mean, the reason that everyone's writing it off, I mean, they have a vested interest in wanting Trantor not to collapse under their feet, essentially. And so it's easier to just say, like, what psycho, what? You are, you are, you're the psycho. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Yeah, it's easier to kind of write off that authority. But, you know, I have always been taught if you're actually really an expert in your field and you're really, really good at it, you should be able to explain it to a normal human being. Well, I guess one literary problem is that Asimov doesn't really know how to explain it to a normal human being. So he's got to kind of come up with an answer. (laughs) Like he's got to kind of come up with a reason why, why it's not explained very well. Oh, well, it's just, you know, the math is just so hard that, uh, no, only the, only the trained experts can, can get it. Yeah. Well, and if I were to talk to a math expert, I definitely, you know, I did calculus in high school, but I wasn't like super good at it. So, you know, I could do the formulas. I didn't understand the ideas behind it. But so if I were to talk to a a math expert and have them explain some sort of equation to me, you know, that might be really difficult, but they could at least simplify it down to whatever level I'm at. So, you know, if I remembered calculus, if they could simplify it down to calculus, you know, calculus calculus one and you know talk a little bit and make some connections i don't have to fully understand but they could build a bridge that's really what i'm trying to say is as an expert you should be able to build a bridge to a normal human being with good thinking skills i think that statement requires a higher ethic to say because i think you're right in saying an expert should be able to but there's also a lot of experts who 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 are doing their work either for themselves or for a small tight-knit community of themselves uh, or people like them so they never actually have to practice through um bringing it down to basic terms or or bringing it down to basic um living and applying it to real life it's just all head all head all head all the time and there's no ethic to say that they shouldn't do that um so i think to say i th- i think in my worldview, an, a proper, well-rounded expert is also a proper, well-rounded person who could apply their learnings to real life and therefore to people who aren't in their field. But I don't think you can say that to someone with a different worldview and have different expectations for them. Is that, am I making sense? Yeah, I think you're making sense. I would say that even it, even assuming that Harry Seldon um, could do that, and I'm not I'm not saying that he couldn't either. Like his speech during his trial is highly compelling, not just on the logical level, but kind of on the 
a level of of pathos too. Like he's very persuasive rhetorically. Mm-hmm. But even so, I think with psychohistory, it presents a, a real uphill battle because you're asking people to to disregard their personal experience and view of things, which I think Asimov also goes to some lengths to say that on the individual level, people can't really perceive that Trantor is like on the verge of collapse. Everything seems fine. And so he's got a really hard job ahead of him if he's really going to convince people effectively that things are on their way down. I think you could draw an interesting parallel there with what we've got going on now with the coronavirus. Because you've you've got experts who are saying one thing. You've got political leadership who are saying a myriad of things. And then you've got the media who are reporting the stats, but... The way that they report the stats is, mm, it's, Jacob, help me out. You're the one who's been watching this. Um, the coronavirus is a little close to home, so I'm going to say correct things only. We do know that stats are manipulable. We know that collecting stats in a true and honest way is actually a complicated process, not a simple or fast one. And in this age of coronavirus, the only kind of stats we're we're asking for are fast and immediate ones, not the not the normal stats which take a long time, and and take a lot of honesty, and and move slowly because of those two things. Yeah, and so I've heard from a lot of uh, my family members who live in fairly small conservative towns, they haven't experienced as much of kind of a surge in the coronavirus around them, and they haven't necessarily met people who have had it. But I'm sure if you were in a city, a big city like New York, it, you know, you encounter it a lot more and there's a lot more danger there. So we're, what we see is not always necessarily what other people see. And that makes receiving advice especially for Americans who are somewhat individualistic. Somewhat. So I'm, I'm attempting to be generous. <laughs> we are the most individualistic country in the world. You can just say it. I think another um, interesting connection point or thing that could be compared to this would be climate change. Yeah. Because we, we don't see the long process of changing climate over time ourselves because our experiences are limited to a certain relatively short number of years and um and and we don't see this global and also we're we're limited in our geographic contexts too as individuals and so we don't see like global impact ourselves and so some people are less uh some people are more likely to reject ideas about climate change and climate science because they're focusing so much more upon their individual experience, which does not seem to match up with what's being said on the academic or scientific level or whatever. And that's interesting, too, and, uh, because it's got the predictive aspect as well. Like, it's got some data, but it's also got some, this is what is going to happen. And at the same time, you know, it's like, you could also say that chaos theory ends up kind of being some people's friends in this regard. When you can look back and ask, like, you know, 50 years ago when scientists were saying that in 50 years, this particular animal would go extinct or something. And now you look 50 years later and well, no, they didn't go, they didn't go extinct. You know, sometimes, I mean, obviously that's good news when an animal doesn't go extinct, but sometimes the uncertainty and the, and the ways that different forecasts and predictions can go awry that can kind of galvanize people into over-interpreting a particular result like that and saying like, ah, well, you can't trust anybody with anything because look what happened with that particular situation. Which is the classic definition of the word attribution error, where we attribute the cause or the lack of causing to a single thing because it it fills up our worldview or it follows our worldview so we don't have to do any hard thinking or hard reconciling or ask any hard questions. Right, look, you... this animal did not go extinct. I'm going to attribute that to the scientists being wrong, and because the scientists are wrong, I don't have to change anything about my life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to ask her an example. I think that was a good one. There's a, there's a million ways attribution error happens, and honestly, we do it 
every day all the time but it it the the point being it's a hard thing to overcome in ourselves as individuals it's can't it's almost impossible to do when you're talking as one person to in a whole group of people and i think it gets even more complicated when when people have vested interests that are, that become part of all of this and we see that very much when we with the example of chen who's and the head of the council um presiding over selden's trial uh selden's trial and there's this line that i want to quote from the from um the book where chen says in this hearing this private hearing to selden can you tell me why i may not rid myself of you and of an uncomfortable and unnecessary three century future which i will never see by having you executed tonight chen is saying like why do i really have to deal with this give me one good reason that I have to put everyone through all of this hassle and inconvenience for something that I'm never actually going to even see. He's got way more interest in consolidating and keeping hold of his power um, rather than actually uh, paying attention and heeding Selden's advice. Again, because he can't see it. Nobody else around him can see it. And it's not even going to happen in his lifetime. So why should he bother? Well, I don't know. It feels a lot like Something biblical again. Um, I'm just gonna uh, hope that you guys pick up on what I'm feeling when I when I read these things. I did feel like a like a a prophet seeing foreseeing doom and everyone responding to him like he was, and then exiled. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They don't heed the prophet's message. They they persecute the prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It felt Old Testament e. Cool. So Asimov, I think, is pointing out. You know, it's easier to dismiss experts when they say something that we don't like so they kind of have this tenuous power the mind of the power of the mind can be tenuous i guess maybe the one comical thing that i see in light of all that we've discussed about um, trusting experts and trusting voices of authority in all of this is that at the same time while the prosecutor in this trial is basically accusing Harry Seldon of conspiracy. Meanwhile, Harry Seldon actually is involved in a certain level of conspiracy. So it's not exactly the best example. What? Because um, he's got secrets. He's he's doing all this stuff, right? <laughs> the whole thing about getting Gal arrested and himself arrested, it was all part of his plan. Everything about getting Terminus selected as the planet that they would go to to begin work on the encyclopedia, it was all part of the plan. And so it turns out that instead of Selden just being this frail old man who is innocent and just wants to be heard, and obviously he does want what is good for the galaxy, but at the same time, he's also got these secrets and strings that he is pulling that it's a fascinating kind of double dynamic within the story when it comes to the character of Selden. And um, it'll be interesting to see in our upcoming episodes how that plays out. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So you have um, to trust him, to say but that. you can't trust him. Yeah. And so we are going to bring this episode to a close. I am so happy to be doing this um, analysis on Foundation. When I started getting the first initial ideas about Galaxy as a podcast, um, when you hear the theme music for this podcast, this is the book that was on my mind when it came to the beginning of all of that stuff. So I am, um, I'm super excited and I hope you are too. I'm looking forward to it. So, um, if you want to hear all of our episodes, like if you're just joining us, then you can head to our website, which is galaxypodcast.com. There you can hear all of our episodes for free. And you can also find links to subscribe to our podcast on any uh, large number of different podcast apps. So we really hope that you would subscribe and uh, not miss an episode. You can also contact us, right? Yeah, you can find us on our Facebook at Galaxy Podcast. And you can also contact us through email at contact at galaxypodcast.com. Please let us know what you're thinking. Please let us know um, if you have any more intel on psychohistory. Yeah, for sure. Please contact us. We want to hear from you. We want to converse with you so that it's more than just the three of us talking. Um, We know that these books are special to so many people, 
and we want to share in that special quality that these books have. So please uh, feel free to contact us and join in the conversation. So until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy 